This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, it's all about the workforce today. American workers enjoying the biggest leap in pay since 2009 as job gains top forecast and the unemployment rate held at a 48-year low. Let's get into today's jobs report with us, back with us. Chris Liu, he's senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He's on the phone from Virginia. And also back with us, Julia Coronado, president and founder at Macro Policy Perspectives, on the phone from Austin, Texas. Chris, great to have you here with Jason and myself. Let's kick it off with you. Um, This seems like a really strong report. You look at it, and what do you see? I, I agree. I think it's a very strong report. It's not only the top line uh, job growth of 250,000, but it's the wages. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I certainly don't want to declare victory on wages at 3.1% growth, uh, but this is finally sort of what we've been hoping for for the last couple of years as the labor market tightens. We've been hoping for this wage increase, uh, but obviously we need to put this in the context of years and decades of wage stagnation. So this is good, but I think most workers want to see more higher wages than this. So, Julia, come on in here. I want to ask you specifically, if you're sitting at the Fed, how do you look at this and what does it uh, portend in terms of uh, rate rises over the next year or so? I think that for the Fed, this is a report that very much confirms they have the right plan in place. So on the one hand, we're generating enough jobs, no signs of constraints, So we have a rising participation rate, a shadow labor force still coming back, wage growth still very moderate. So there's no real signs of overheating. They don't need to speed up or worry about intensifying inflation pressures. On the other hand, at the pace of job creation we're running at, we are going to see the unemployment rate keep falling. They do probably want to kind of nudge closer to a neutral stance. So for the Fed, this is just stay the course, steady as she goes gradual rate hikes. I think harder choices face them next year, but this is easy. All right. So it looks pretty strong and uh, certainly the numbers look at that uh, and and it feels that way. But, you know, we've got a fascinating story. We just heard about it on on Bloomberg Radio from Gina Smilek. And she talks about millennial men and how 10 years after the Great Recession, uh, 25 to 34 year old men are lagging in the workforce more than any other age and gender demographic. Um, Chris, come on in on this. This is important. I mean, this is our younger generation. They've got to be working. Um, How do we fix this? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, part of it is um, people are staying in the workforce a lot longer, which means there are fewer opportunities Mm -hmm. for people uh, coming straight out of college, millennials. Uh, There's probably a lack of skills issue as well that we still haven't addressed in this country. We've got a lot of open jobs, about 7 million open jobs uh, at this point. But you talk to employers, and they'll tell you they still can't find the right people. So we need to concentrate more, whether you're college educated or coming out of high school or community college, in ensuring that people have the right skills. But you're right. I mean, there, there, we have. I, I'm not going to say we're at full employment, but we have a lot of employment. But we probably have a lot of underemployment as well. And so, Julia, pick up on that theme because I, 
just to yeah. underscore what, what Carol was saying, this is the single most read story on the Bloomberg <laughs> right now. So clearly it's resonating and clearly yeah. people are seeing something in there that they're saying, oh, either I didn't know that or I did know that. Uh, and it's a big issue. What do you make of it? Right. And look, um, that's great reporting by Gina. She's a fantastic journalist. There's another side of this story, and that is the rapidly rising participation of millennial women. Ah. So in general, we're seeing them just they have already surpassed the past the cycle's peak in labor force participation. They're rocketing towards uh, the the record rate that they set in the late 90s. So millennial women are pouring into the workforce and and broadly speaking women are leading the rebound in prime age participation so maybe we are seeing something along the line some degree of increased household responsibility sharing between men and women Um, i don't have the detail to be able to actually identify that but there are jobs and the millennial women are taking them while the millennial men aren't as much. So that, that you, you are blowing our mind. This is <laughs> such an interesting twist. Thank you, yes. Julia. Well, and I feel like people were talking about that coming off of the financial crisis where there were a lot of men, I mean, men and women who lost jobs, right? But men right. and where women became the primary breadwinners. We earner. saw that. And maybe the, yes. some of that is sticking. Um, Chris, let me go back to you, though, for a moment, because what's interesting is you say people staying in the workforce. I can't tell you how many just anecdotes I have of people either in their 50s or so at big publicly held companies where the companies are paring back and they're cutting back. And I'm seeing it in the pharmaceutical industry, healthcare. I'm seeing it uh, in transportation. I'm seeing it in so many different industries. So I'm trying to make sense of this because people, older people are being let go, too. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I mean, part of people staying in the workforce longer was a necessity coming out of the Great Recession. A lot of people uh, had their retirement savings shaved uh, by the stock market, and so people ended up working longer than they probably wanted to. You may now start to see that get back to the level it's been in the past, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, which would then create more opportunities uh, for millennials in general. I do like this idea of millennial women catching up in terms of labor force participation and probably exceeding. I would argue that we could probably do more, and some sensible policies that other countries have adopted, like paid family leave policies, right. could help kickstart that even more. Amen. <laughs> That's a great note to end on. All right, Julia Coronado, president and founder of Macro That's Policy great. Perspectives, joining us on the phone from Austin. And Chris Liu, glad to have you back with us as well. A senior fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, and of course, former deputy secretary of labor in the Obama administration. What an interesting report. I did not expect that it was going to go there. So fascinating. We've got a group of college students. I'm going to have to ask them in the break. They're kind of watching what we're doing today, and we'll see what they have to say about, you know... They're mostly women. Would they let their husbands stay home or their partners stay home? I don't know. We're reporting in real time here on Bloomberg (laughs) Radio. All right. Elvis Costello for your Friday afternoon. Pumping it up. Going to the pump, et cetera, et cetera. You get the drift, Carol Masser. Uh, Fernando Valley is here with us. He is oil and gas analyst 
Bloomberg Intelligence. And we're talking big oil, as we talked about just a few minutes ago. Market seems to get swept up. He's kind of got uh, Elvis Costello glasses on. He does. I was just kind of looking. like, am I wrong? But I'm like, yeah, yeah I no. see a similarity. He's rocking it. He's anyway. rocking it. Uh, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, so, Fernando, what do you make uh, of these numbers, especially Exxon, uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron, I should say, coming out? Market seems okay to good with them. Yeah, I think uh, overall investors are, have been reacted fairly fairly well to these numbers, particularly for Chevron. Uh, most important thing for, for them was to reach the run rate on buybacks that they guided to last quarter. They said they were going to buy back $3 billion annually starting in Q3. They did 750 so right on, on, on schedule. And I think the market uh, rewarded them for, for actually uh, practicing what they preach. Uh, on, on Exxon, they um, they delivered. They beat the, the expectations. Uh, if you look at the actual breakdown, both of these companies, uh, a lot of the earnings inflection came thanks to to just oil prices, uh, the, the change in oil prices, higher prices year over year, contributed about two and a half billion dollars in earnings for both companies. Um, I think. When you look, though, at the strategy, the big thing is what are these companies doing to, to make the dividend and the buyback sustainable? And today, I think Exxon is probably taking a more proactive stance. Uh, you've seen them very active in the M&A side. Uh, they actually increased uh, their CapEx to $30 billion, uh, but for the next uh, – for 2020. And while Chevron is taking kind of a reverse approach, maintaining CapEx relatively low and not looking for, for deals. So Shell and Chevron are devoting billions of dollars to repurchases. Exxon's maybe investing in the business, and investors preferred. And I get it when you you know contribute more money to buybacks, right? It's just reducing the amount of shares outstanding, and that makes the EPS number look better. I mean, where are we as investors saying, you know what, folks? It's about investing in the business, right? Because that pays off longer term. And maybe doing some deals too. Right, exactly. Well, if you remember with Shell, they, they did the deal early in the cycle, right? They bought BG right. and that was that meant a, a huge offering of shares. So the buybacks today are really to take back from all the issues that they did back in that deal. Chevron, on the other hand, is probably the only one of the majors, it's not probably, it's the only one of the majors that not, has not been acquisitive. Right. Seen BP, Total, Exxon, Shell, uh, Conoco, you know, Conoco not, but uh, uh, all of these guys have been pretty acquisitive. Statoil, uh, Equinor, rather, uh, being very acquisitive. Chevron, is, is, they lucked out on having the Permian uh, uh, acreage still in their portfolio. Right. But I think when you look long term, their overall production growth is 1% to 2%. Does that sustain real dividend growth if we get back to inflation, real inflation in, this, in the world? Well, as somebody who looks at these companies and does the analysis and looks at the, the balance sheets and in terms of where they're investing for the future, I mean, do you think, even though investors are pushing Chevron shares up 2.7% today, that they are maybe missing something about, you know, that if the company is investing kind of longer term for what's going to pay off, I don't know, three years, five years? I know energy investments take a while. Yeah, definitely. It's a five to ten. Are they making a mistake and saying, "Guys, you're missing the better, you know, the, the more important picture here"? Yeah, it's a five to ten year uh, cycle, and and it's really about returns on capital. And I, I think when you look ten year to today, ten years from now, you're going to see that Exxon actually did deals counter cyclically, and you know Chevron, unless oil prices really don't recover has kind of stayed back and they'll have a, they'll they'll struggle to to reach growth and and deliver real dividend growth into the next decade unless they they get uh they have massive exploration success and so as you look at oil prices going into 19 obviously there's been a lot of 
political turmoil, shall we say, around Saudi Arabia, you know, sort of synthesize what's going on with sort of supply, demand and oil prices and how that plays through your modeling for these companies? Yeah, where to begin? I mean, uh, partially when you see oil Brent prices uh, near 80, um, there's definitely uh, demand elasticity uh, to that, particularly in emerging markets. Uh, it becomes a lot more expensive. You've seen in Latin America in particular the, the strikes and the strike that it's generated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's underestimated in the market. Uh, you have regulatory changes in the IMO 2020 marine fuel uh, that's changing uh, 2020 that's going to also raise the price of shipping overall, all things else, all else equal. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the geopolitical, uh, I think what's most interesting is North America is producing a lot of oil, yeah. but it can't export. And so the refining side of the equation is having a massive uh, bonanza because you, particularly the ones that are near these producing centers, they can, uh, they can sell, you can buy cr- cheap crude and sell right. at an expensive price. I'm so glad we took, took a look at this sector because you're Me right, too. Jason. We, we just don't do this a lot. Um, Fernando, thank you and so much. And we got the guy who I can know. tell us all. all so right. smart. Fernando Valley, oil and gas analyst at BI. Thanks so much. Give me pennies, I'll take So when we think of green technology investing, we often think of renewable energy, things like wind, solar, electric vehicles. And you would be right, Jason Kelly. For well, thinking thank that. you. I was thinking that. <laughs> and that's, How did really, you know? I just, you know, I'm, I'm in your head today. Uh, but things, things like that have attracted hundreds of billions of dollars in new investments and transactions. Our next guest is going to tell us that there's a lot more to invest in when it comes to green tech startups. So let's get into this. Let's head to uh, Canoga Park, California. Check in with Matthew Mills, President and Chief Operating Officer at MedX. Hey, um, Matt, nice to have you here with uh, Jason and myself, at least on the phone here. Um, tell me a little bit about what... Uh, uh, kinds of companies you're investing in when it comes to the green tech space? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. And, and we're lucky enough to be one of the fastest-paced crowdfunding projects um, on the planet right now. Um, we've had regular Americans uh, investing in our project at $420 for 700 shares. Um, for a little over two years now, um, we've raised $3.8 million. We're a fully operational company, and regular Americans uh, took us to the next level. So we're disrupting the pest control industry as well as the team management industry uh, that the pharmaceutical companies and obviously large chemical companies uh, have been in control of for many years. Very unique situation. Uh, our company, Medex, has been around since 2014, and we have been very fortunate to, to grow uh, to a fully operational company and now uh, pacing ourselves and, and aspiring to list on a on an exchange uh, in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. And so, uh, Matthew, tell us how that, you know, this was obviously spurred in part by uh, the Jobs Act that really opened up, that was passed under President Obama. It really opened up the possibility for these types of investments that were, you know, really limited uh, for many, many years to accredited uh, investors. What types of investors are you getting onto this platform, if you can generalize for us? Well, well, yeah, you know, we're getting all types of investors. You know, if, if you're over the age of 18 and you make, you know, $18,000 a year or more, you can invest at the minimum level. But we've got, you know, people that are, 
you know, at the at the blue collar level, all the way up to you know investors investing a half a million dollars. It's a pretty incredible thing, and I get a, a real rush out of seeing you know regular Americans that wouldn't be able to invest in things like this being able to get involved and you know calling into the company I love talking uh, to some of these people it's a, a, a real neat thing and the jobs act we studied it as it was ruling out and we were actually the second company in the country to get qualified by the SEC to use the new regulation a plus crowdfunding initiative so it's been quite a rush. There's been a learning curve, yeah. but uh, we've been been lucky enough um, to to challenge through that that learning curve and run through the obstacle course. And and now we've got you know again a, a right. fully operational company. What's interesting? What struck me? Uh your first response you talked about you know kind of the end game is to list on an exchange and i find that interesting to hear that from you you're crowdfunding you're getting this going off the ground but we're living jason and i talk to people all the time we're living in this environment where there's so much money sloshing around for startups that it that it's not usually necessary to go public so i find it interesting that that that's your end game how come well because we've We've done something that's a little different. You know, we're going to compete in an area, you know, the green scene is, is an area where a lot of these big chemical companies and pharmaceutical companies really don't want companies like us to exist. Um, so I'm here to build a business that is going to, um, and our plan is to acquire multiple green scene companies um, and build our platform and build a billion-dollar business. You really can't do that on the private side the way we are. I mean, it's taken us, you know, two years, two solid years of, of you know, this crowdfunding initiative to get to this almost $3.8 million. So we do have an engagement with an investment banker now. We are moving the company forward and planning some roll-ups and have new products launching. So in order for us to really get the big traction and really get to the next level, we're going to need to find, one, a liquidity point for our investors, but also um, the ability for the larger-scale investors to come and inject large-scale capital so we can really push out our plan right. of acquiring other companies, rolling out our products, uh, marketing worldwide is our products are starting to get worldwide traction, which is uh, pretty interesting uh, for yeah. a company that's uh, only a few years old. All right. Good to check in with you. Matthew Mills, President and Chief Operating Officer of MedEx, uh, on the phone, on a cell phone from Canoga Park, California. I don't know, Dave Wilson. You put some Billy Joel on. I may not ever bring you in. Just She's just going to sit and listen to Billy Joel all afternoon. You can tell me about the chart of the day. All day. right. All okay, right, Jason, right. I'll do that. Carol can listen in if she wow, wants. Wow, sell can, out so quickly. Know. Oh, there we go. We cut out the music. You're good. <laughs> okay, okay. In any now case, she's paying attention. Chris Jacomi, he's listening. He's on the board. He's listening. Okay. Okay, fine. This is all about what we've seen in the past few weeks in terms of how far U.S. stocks fell and what the potential is for a rebound here. And it's something that Tom Lee over at Fundstrat Global Advisors looked at the other day. And he, he took a, a different spin, perhaps, on what happened last month. He focused on stocks in the S&P 500 and the Russell 2000 uh, relative to a couple of moving averages. Now, we've talked about those before as a way to kind of track market trends. So what he did is looked at the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 and the Russell that uh, were above their 
50-day moving mm-hmm. averages and also the 200-day. You saw some of the lowest readings in years last month, lower than you had when stocks were falling in January and February. In the case of the S&P 500, only 11% of the stocks in the index at one point uh, were above their moving averages. And with the Russell, it was only 7.5%. So you got the small and the large cap universe with that, right? Right. And you have sort of the shorter and longer uh, time frames right. when you look at the 200-day moving average as well as the 50. So Lee's take, he went back and ran the numbers. He can only find nine other times going all the way back to 1998 where the numbers lined up the way they did last month. And eight out of nine, you saw the S&P 500 higher after three months and also after six months. We're talking 10% plus percentage gains over both periods. The one exception... 2008, in the midst of the financial crisis, which is frankly not a surprise. Right. But in any case, so he figures there is more room for a rebound here, and he's telling the people who read his reports to be aggressive buyers of stocks. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart. The explanation goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave Wilson with his chart of the day. Thank you so much. All right. So now let's turn to one of our true expert reporters. That's Tiffany Carey. She's covered some of the lawsuits over chemical giants, over chemicals against companies like DuPont, uh, Wolverine Worldwide. Now comes a deep dive into the town where they were first made by none other uh, than 3M. It's a blockbuster story for sure. Tiffany is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tiffany, what is this about? Just distill this down for us. What's it about? It's about a chemical that's showing up in drinking water that has been there, we think, for a while, but people are really only catching on to it this year, and it was made for, you know, more than half a century by 3M. Where is it showing up? Uh, By one estimate, it's a third of the U.S. population's drinking water. Now, those are very low levels, keep in mind. Okay. But it seems to concentrate around, you know, certain industrial factories where it was used, or it was also in firefighting foam. So as you can imagine, you know, spraying foam into the ground um, with the chemicals in it, it's it's easier for it to get into the water. So you say it's fairly low levels, playing devil's advocate here. There are a lot of chemicals in our water. Hopefully they, you know, don't rise to the level <laughs> where they actually hurt us. Maybe I'm putting my head in the sand. How concerned should we be about this? Well, I think the thing the reporting showed is a lot of scientists are talking about this as like a new PCB or DDT. Um, There's just so much evidence and and a weight of of growing studies that really connect this to things like immune system harms and cancer. Um, And of course, these are just connections. It takes a long time to really establish what the human risk is. But people talk about sort of a blocking of cell-to-cell communication, uh, which sounds like a pretty vital function. So, What, What do you mean? Well, cells need to communicate with each other to organize an immune response, say, or to fight a rogue cell that causes cancer. Right. And there are studies that, that indicate this is actually blocking cells' ability to communicate with each other. So, the, And from what I understand, too, like the, we're talking about a chemical that you, you can't get rid of, right? It does not break down in the environment. Forever chemicals is what they call it, which I find just disturbing, correct? So once it's in you... It leaves the body slowly over time. Okay. People talk about a half-life, but it does not degrade naturally. I think right. there may be some incineration that gets rid of it at, at pretty high temperatures, but obviously that's not always easy to all do. All right, so we are, after all, Bloomberg. What does this mean for 3M? I think they have faced a lot of challenges. They had a big $850 million settlement earlier this year with their home state, and now they're facing lawsuits in a lot of other places across the U.S., so 
remains to be seen. Is it something that they were aware of? I, I'm always curious about when we got a story like this. We've only got about 30 seconds. Like, is it something that they knew maybe wasn't such cool stuff? Or is it... I mean, there's a lot of companies who had stuff out, and only later on did we all realize maybe how bad it was. Right. The thing that's interesting here is the home state uh, released a lot of 3M's internal emails, and you can see over time how slowly they did learn a lot more about the chemicals that the broader uh, world was not aware of. I always think about, Jason, for how many years that, you know, that the slogans of living better by chemicals, and we're all realizing, um, yeah, there's a lot of good that can be done, but there's a lot of dangerous stuff that comes out of all of these chemicals as well. Great reporting, and we'll continue to follow this story. Tiffany Carey, she's a reporter at Bloomberg News, and as we mentioned, she's covered some of the lawsuits over uh, these kinds of chemicals against some of the big uh, chemical makers as well. Bloomberg Business Week, right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Just a few minutes left in today's trading session to wrap up uh, the trading week. Bill Stone is here, co-chief investment officer at Avalon Advisors, former chief investment strategist over at PNC Asset Management. Bill joining us uh, on the phone from Houston. So interesting week. I feel like it's been two weeks in one again, Bill Stone. Uh, we had big tech earnings. We got Apple, of course, late last night. We have the jobs report, and then we've got midterms just around the corner. You look at this market environment. Are we at a place where investors are increasingly going to say, you know what? Stocks have been beat up a bunch. I see some value there. Or are we starting to see a breakdown, certainly in terms of some of the growth fundamentals uh, around the globe? You know, I think I'd go with, uh, you know, the the former uh, just because, yes, I mean, we got beaten down. We got down, you know, let's call it 10%. Um, we still believe the underlying fundamentals are still supportive. So, yes, some things are slowing down. Yes, you're seeing, and we always see a few, I'll say, uh, relative disappointments. Uh, even Apple's a tough one, right? The earnings were good. Um, yes, their forward guidance wasn't wasn't as good, but obviously, who knows if they're kind of talking down the forward guidance, how that'll play out in the end. Um, you know, even today, the jobs report clearly was good. Um, certainly, the, the bond market's telling you it was strong. Um, so I think there's still enough there. Again, it's all weighed with there is some slowing down in the global economy. Uh, so it isn't maybe as good as it was, but uh, I still think we've got some bounce left in stocks. You know, you know, Bill, the fact that you're down in Houston sort of reminds me of something we were talking about earlier, Carol and myself, that, you know, we got so focused on tech earnings and largely really until today sort of ignored uh, big oil and some good numbers coming out uh, there. As you look across the earnings season, X-Tech, uh, you know, what were the surprises for you? You know, either someone surprising on the upside or the downside, and especially things that made you go, oh, wait, maybe things aren't quite as rosy as everybody thinks. I mean, I think I, it's interesting. So, yeah, since I now am in Houston, I uh, I, mean, I always paid attention to energy, but certainly it's a much more conversation here uh, than anywhere else I've ever worked. Um, I do think energy is an interesting one. Um, certainly the energy companies are beating by a large amount this yeah. quarter. Um, you know, it's still, though, the market – 
in the hole probably doesn't believe that they're not going to spend too much capex, and that's really the story. Is if you if you like energy, you believe at least the companies you're in uh, aren't going to squander it on you know drilling holes and and you know those kind of things. And I I think that's where the separation. So I think that's interesting, and it's good to see them coming clearly from our standpoint. Um, actually, though, you know surprising to the upside uh, and like i said it's all a matter of coming to whether they i guess some of them that have promised not to spend extra cap as come through with it and etc um if you believe that then that'll i think the gap between where oil is and where those stocks have moved up or not moved up um, but are investors being a little bit stupid bill in that you know right we're supposed to invest in our businesses right and that's where we get growth and earnings and revenues longer term. Like, I just wonder if sometimes we're getting short-sighted again or not focusing on the right things as investors. Well, I think you have to be – so you're going to try and get me drummed out of Houston, aren't you? So, uh, I, I think, no. It's such a lovely city. Uh, um, I like Houston. I have lots of family, wonderful family that I love. I went to high school in Houston. Houston. I love it. Yeah, we're all in on Houston. So, but, but what I mean is I think energy's a bit – I mean, well, they're all – I say it's a bit different in the sense that you know you have to be careful with um you know whether you're just spending capex and if you're going to get or if the company is going to get and investors are going to get repaid for that right and I think that's the difference uh we've had a lot of capex we obviously with all the shale and everything um and certainly parts of the energy infrastructure probably still need uh capex I think it's more the um uh some of the the some of the um uh E&P companies yeah. um, that, that I think people are more worried about. I think big oil, um, kind of like an ExxonMobil, has said, hey, we're not going to spend quite as much on CapEx. We're going to try and harvest the gains. Um, so it is, it's a fine balance, though, right? I mean, if, if investors are fine with CapEx, as long as they think they're going to get paid for it, right? right. Um, or at least that's the way you should look at it. But, you know, you do see, right, and you see companies will invest in CapEx if they do see there's a payoff or if they feel upbeat about the economic outlook. So I do sometimes wonder if they're doing buybacks rather than CapEx. I mean, if they're doing M&A, that makes sense, uh, too, to some regard. But I just wonder what that says about, you know, the outlook. Yeah, I think it's still energy is a tough one. But uh, and we have seen some uh, set-aside energy, um, but we have actually seen some more CapEx in energy. But in, in the whole, you know, we have seen some CapEx post um, the tax cuts, which, right. you know, should be expected given what was written into that uh, corporate tax cut. And so what other sectors are you looking at as we get toward the end of the year? May we get post uh, midterms? You know, there's obviously uh, quite a heated election uh, going on down where you are on the Senate <laughs> side. Uh, you might have seen some ads here and there about that. Uh, you know, what else do you look at as we move into 19 sector wise? Only got about 30 seconds. Well, I think. Sure. I mean, I think a couple of interesting thing is certainly the places that have been beaten up are some of the more cyclical. So maybe the industrials mm-hmm. that got, you know, hit pretty hard, um, you know, since we're a believer that the economy, you know, is is OK and, and is, is is a good foundation. I think that's some spots that we're certainly watching. And those earnings have beaten on the whole uh, for the third quarter. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Bill Stone, co-chief investment officer at Avalon Advisors uh, down in Houston, Texas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.